0: Welcome to the show, I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Valentine's Day is upon us, and it's a day that reminds us that love is something worth celebrating. It's also a day that can be hard on folks who are isolated and those in relationships which need a bit of help. The reason why love is so confusing is that it's actually really complicated when it comes to our physiology. Our bodies act differently when we're in love, our brains think in strange ways, and our heart actually does beat to a different drum. Behind all of these changes is a whole field of science, and today we're very fortunate to have a global expert on the topic here to talk to us about his research and clinical practice. Dr. Richard Schwartz is an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and a consultant to McLean and Massachusetts General Hospitals. His area of practice and research is into issues surrounding social isolation, loneliness, social connection, and lasting marriage. He's co-authored three books with his wife, Jacqueline Olds, who's also an MD. And this includes topics like marriage in motion and the natural ebb and flow of lasting relationship. He and his wife have also presented two TED Talks on the subject. So needless to say, if we wanted to learn about the science of love, we found the right person. Let's check it out. Welcome to the show, Dr. Schwartz. Pleasure to be here. I'm really, really glad you're here. It's such a timely topic. We're going to talk about the science of love today, and Valentine's Day is just around the corner. Uh, you're an expert in this field. Can you give me a bit of background on your professional uh, history? Briefly, I'm a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. I've spent most of my
1: professional life at McLean Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And uh, it was at McLean that I met my wife of now many decades, Jackie Olds. And together, we got interested over time in issues of loneliness, social isolation, and in a way, it's opposite what the keys are to lasting relationship and the patterns in lasting relationships. So that's some of what brings me here.
0: Right. And I saw your TEDx talk that you did with your wife. It was excellent. It was talking about the natural ebb and flow. And you've also written several books on the topic of love and loneliness, correct?
1: Yes, we've written a couple of books on loneliness. Uh, the Lonely American being a more recent one and overcoming loneliness in everyday life uh, from a long time ago. And then, uh, yes, we've written about uh, marriages and marriage in motion.
0: Right, right. And and one of the ways that I found you was by an article that was done through Harvard called The Science of Love. And, you know, for a lot of people listening, they may not realize that this is a highly researched area. And there's a lot of pretty intricate physiology and science going on there. How did you start to look at some of that specific research?
1: We started looking at it as as an extension of our trying to uh, think about what makes relationships work and what are the keys to having them last over time. And uh, just kind of got engaged in that. We also uh, probably uh, started to look at it because we'd already been pretty deeply immersed in all the literature on the negative effects of loneliness and social isolation on our bodies and our health and our minds.
0: Right. And so when when the researchers are looking at things, there's been a lot of different approaches. What are some of the things that people have been able to actually quantify when it comes to love? Uh, In terms of quantifying, probably not that
1: much, but in terms of seeing physiologic correlates uh, increasingly more and more. The, The standard experiment of the last couple of years or maybe last decade, looking at love has been to put people in fMRI machines, brain scans, that look at the uh, relative degree of activity of different parts of the brain and do things like uh, having someone look at a picture of the one you love as opposed to a picture of a friend and see what the different patterns are. Uh, It actually, uh, the the earliest study of that kind was uh, done with a different kind of love paternal love. they had new mothers uh, looking at pictures of their own infant and the infants of friends to see uh, what the differences were. In
0: 2005, researcher Helen Fisher led a research team that published a groundbreaking study that included the first functional MRI images of the brains of individuals in the throes of romantic love her team analyzed 2500 brain scans of college students who viewed pictures of someone special to them and compared the scans to ones taken when students looked at pictures of acquaintances photos of people they romantically loved caused the participants brains to become active in regions rich with dopamine the so-called feel-good neurotransmitter Two of the brain's regions that showed activity in the fMRI scans were regions associated with reward detection, expectation, and integration of sensory experiences into social behavior. They were also those centers associated with pleasure, focused attention, and the motivation to pursue and acquire rewards. One of these areas in the brain is known as the brain's reward circuit, which coincidentally was discovered by Dr. Schwartz's father-in-law. This circuit is considered to be a primitive neural network, meaning it's evolutionarily old. Some of the other structures that contribute to the reward circuits are called the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the prefrontal cortex. These are exceptionally sensitive to and reinforcing of behavior that induces pleasure, such as sex, food consumption, and drug use. Let's get back to the interview. Right, and what were some of the things that happened? So you're scanning the brain and you're seeing different different things happen in the brain, actually, when people look at photos of people that they care about?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, and some patterns emerge, and I have to say, what emerges from that kind of research is interesting because you can sort of see it happening, but I'm not sure it actually tells us anything about love that we don't already know and have known for uh, for, for centuries, yeah. but it shows what it looks like in the brain. And, uh, you know, some of the things that turn up is that when you are looking at the one you love, there's a fair amount of activity in the dopaminergic reward centers, the parts of our brain that are involved in wanting and seeking. There's interestingly a drop in activity in serotonergic parts of the brain, serotonin being something that is lower in depression, but also uh, lower in obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm. And that sort of makes sense because uh, Early love is a lot like an obsession. (laughs) Uh, You just keep going over the same thoughts and the same same ideas over and over again, and you just can't stop. So those are some of the things that actually are in this early stages of love. And uh, what you see over time is uh, that things sort of calm down, serotonin normalizes. Actually, from uh, other kinds of studies uh, of circulating hormones, you see other things. Uh, uh, one of the uh, things that have been looked at is uh, cortisol levels. Uh, mm-hmm. Cortisol being the, the hormone that marshals our response to st- stress and is a pretty good marker for when we stress, when we're stressed and in the early stages of love. That's a pretty stressful state, as probably most people have noticed. And then things calm down over time. Uh, cortisol normalizes things like Oxytocin, uh, which is a hormone that is, at least in other animals, related to pair bonding, to uh, fidelity in, uh, in non-human animals. Um, uh, that, that tends to go up, that tends to be calming, that tends to soothe our immune system. So those are the kinds of patterns that you see.
0: Right, yeah, oxytocin is a, is a touch hormone almost where when people are physically affectionate and they, and they, they cuddle, that increases as well. How do the changes, so okay, you say you fall in love and you, you have higher stress levels, but you're also bonding more. As a relationship starts to develop, those change and how do they benefit us to make it a little bit more of a less stressful experience?
1: Well, I, I think a couple of things uh, tend to happen. Uh, one is that we just start to feel comfortable and secure in our relationship. And that is actually a a good state to be in. It's it, it it's calming. It's soothing. It's no longer filled with the stimulation of wondering whether you're going to get there and make it. And those states are are probably uh, good for our health. And then uh, there is some suggestion that that oxytocin uh, calms down our immune system as well as makes us healthier in that way. And uh, you know there is so much evidence that. States of social connection, I'm not just love, but, uh, but, but friendship, uh, are really important in uh, mediating our overall health and well-being over our lives.
0: Right. Right. Somebody who's in a, I think, married, happy couples live longer than, than people that are alone. Uh, yep yeah, they, they they live longer uh they uh they
1: have a better cognition over time uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a it's a good state to be
0: in. <laughs> good that's great well that's good news people and a lot of people are listening there's probably people that are listening that are newly in love and in the throes of it all and then there's people that have been together for quite some time. are there different phases on how a relationship develops over time, not physiologically but emotionally
1: yeah over uh, Over the ages, there have been lots of different ways of describing different phases of love, but the one that has really held up uh, the longest and actually begins with the ancient Greeks, I don't know what their language was, but these days, people talk about passionate uh, versus companionate love, Mm -hmm. that uh, in, in the early stages of love, it's filled with passion, and often later, they, the, the passion recedes somewhat, and the, uh, the connection is more of companionship and uh, less stormy, uh less, less passionate uh, sense of uh, being involved and engaged with someone. And, and that really has held up, and that probably is what's being described in these studies of early uh, stressful parts of love and later uh, calmer parts of love. On the other hand, you know, one of the things that sounds a little depressing about that as a, a model, if it's seen as an inevitable one, is is that uh, so are we all doomed if we stay in relationships to just tread water in a, a companionate state while, uh, with, without a sense of passion towards each other again? And uh, I think... My own observations working with lots of couples is the answer to that is no, that having a long relationship doesn't mean that you continue devoid of any passionate attachment to, uh, to each other. And uh, there is at least not one study confirming that that's true, in which a group looked at in those fMRI's mm. of people who answered an ad that essentially said, "Are you still passionately in love with your partner of many years?" I mean, like that, and they did fMRI's uh, with them looking at the uh, supposed object of continued passion after many years, and a lot of things actually did look like the brain scans of people in early love. <laughs> so um, that's excellent. It's not an inevitable decline into uh, into lack
0: of passion we're here with dr richard schwartz from harvard medical school when we come back he'll explain why love is blind how relationships have a natural ebb and flow and why dating apps and social platforms may limit our ability to connect and commit we'll be right back Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Schwartz from the Harvard Medical School. In this segment, he'll explain why love is blind, how relationships have a natural ebb and flow, and why dating apps and social platforms may limit our ability to connect and commit. Let's check it out. We're going to talk about some of the concepts that you mentioned in your TEDx talk about couples and as the relationship develops. But there's one term that I thought was really interesting. Can you explain what love is blind means?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I think we all know what love is blind means. But some of those fMRI studies suggest what it means in brain terms, which is that when we're in love, the activity, again, looking at our beloved, the activity in the parts of our brain that are involved in critical judgment uh, decreases. So uh, basically, our brain is, is sort of offline for critical thinking when we're gazing at, at the face of the one we love. And, uh, yeah, and that, that is probably the physiologic clar- correlate of love being blind.
0: I love that. And that is true. We all make some uh, rather strange decisions uh, when we are in the throes of love. In your TEDx talk, you talked a lot about the law of motion in human relationships, that there is an ebb and flow in every relationship that's completely normal. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Uh, Sure. When we meet and fall in love, we begin a process of
1: essentially moving towards each other, closer and closer, getting to know each other and better and better, getting more and more involved. And there's a wonderful excitement in that movement towards another person and discovery of another person. And that's wonderful, but of course it it can't go on forever. There's a certain point where you are just close and that movement, movement stops, which, often is experienced as, as, as a loss. The, the, uh, an excitement is lost, the feeling of uh, a continued discovery of uh, deeper and deeper intimacy is, is no longer there. Uh, instead, there is a uh, feeling of comfort and security. And one of the wonderful thing about that comfort and security is you can begin to turn your attention, get interested in, get engaged in other things again. Uh, one of the things about being in the early stages of love is you, you tend to withdraw and lose interest in everything else. And uh, that that's not a good state to remain in for the rest of your life, just gazing into each other's eyes and not doing anything else. So your, your, your attention begins to shift back to other things, other interests, other projects, other people even. And that's a good thing. But uh, it begins a kind of drift apart, a, a lack of attention. Uh, well, not a lack, a lessening of attention, a lessening of involvement, and that's perfectly fine. It lets us have richer lives, but there's a danger of that just going on too long if you don't attend to it and do something to uh, reverse the direction. You know, we, we we tend to see the same pattern in a in a very simple. Uh, Way uh, on a week-to-week basis, we tend to uh, uh, to turn away a little from uh, from our partner during a work week where we're busy and engaged in other things, and then we reengage over the weekend, and that rhythm uh, keeps the, uh, the the relationship going. Yeah. But but there are other things that can interfere with that re-engagement, that movement back towards each other. Children do that a lot. Um, mm-hmm. uh, demands of work, illnesses projects, uh, needed travel. And uh, something breaks that rhythm of re-engagement and you sort of end up feeling strangely at a distance. You can start to feel estranged. And it's important to uh, do something to re-engage each other at that time. Um, the, the danger is that you conclude that this state is a state of I'm no longer in love or maybe I wasn't really in love to start with. And uh, and then you st- start taking uh, moves to make that a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and it's important
0: to understand that kind of ebb and flow so you don't do that. Right. Well, actually, I'm going to come back to some of those financial stressors. But one of the things I heard you say in your TEDx was that sometimes when individuals are exposed to very positive, healthy relationships in their day-to-day life, when they experience an ebb and flow, they realize that's relatively normal and they can come back to it because they realize that's part of it. When other people haven't been exposed to it, they may be basing what love is based on a Hollywood movie or a romance novel or something like that. And so when things start to change and shift as they naturally do, they fear the worst and they think that there might be something wrong with the relationship. Is that something you've seen in your practice? Uh, It certainly is. That's where where Jackie and I began to
1: notice this for the first time, that uh, uh, one one thing that is true about modern society is that uh, a lot of children grow up in homes where marriages don't last. And the result of that is that a lot of kids grow up without a a realistic picture of what a, a, a lasting marriage or lasting love is like. And uh, of, of course, what do we do when uh, uh, when we, we haven't seen something for ourselves, when it's not a part of our lived experience? Uh, we imagine what it should look like. And there are all sorts of wonderful sources of information that fuel that imagination. Um, movies, books, stories, all of which tend to have a kind of unrealistic, idealized, uh, you you reach perfect love and it's static from that point on and so you begin to think that that's what love should look like and what love does look like if it's real love and if you begin to experience your own relationship as uh diverging from that you start to say oh my god this 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 is this is really broken this, uh, i don't think i'm going to be able to fix this and in fact because people who have come from families that, uh, that haven't lasted, whether the marriage hasn't lasted, people are uh, particularly terrified uh, and also expecting theirs not to be able to last. So, uh, uh, so it, it tends to be kind of brittle and, uh, and not having a, a realistic notion of uh, what things look like over time makes it even more brittle.
0: Okay, I'm gonna keep on going on this topic, so I think this is really, really interesting. How has access through dating apps and social media and being exposed to all the options out there impacted how people love and how much effort they put into keeping a relationship going as it ebbs and flows? I I
1: think there's sort of good news and bad news here. The availability of social media. Has basically transformed the uh, the world of available other partners into one that uh, is limitless, mm-hmm. and uh, and there, there's always someone more to look at out there and to see. And it didn't always used to be true. <laughs> you just knew a few people. You had, came in contact with a few people. There there, there wasn't a sense of perhaps dream fulfilling other options always there. Uh, I. Mentioned a, a, a an intriguing study that was done long ago, uh, when both the internet dating internet dating was new, and something called speed dating had just been introduced, where everybody would be in a room and have two minutes to talk to a, a potential date and then move on. And they found that the speed daters actually ended up with more dates, even though they had fewer options than the, the people doing internet dating, because the people doing internet dating are always looking just uh, over the next hill to see what else there might be. And so ended up with nothing at all. And I, I, I think that that same effect puts uh, marriages more at risk when they hit rocky times. And um, and uh, you know, I've seen in my own practice, uh, uh, Whole series of people who uh, have, in times of difficulty in their marriages, turned to the internet, mm. uh, often reconnected with an old, uh, old girlfriend. In the in the case of the men I'm thinking of, and uh, you know, and it just you know, went easily from there, uh, uh, and tended to come apart. And I, I think it, in some ways, I uh, the whole social media phenomenon of our lifetime has, has made that so much easier. On the other hand, uh, there, there also over time is some evidence that marriages are happier now than they were, you know, a couple of generations ago. Hmm. And probably that's because that unhappy marriages are less likely to last than they than they did when Divorce and separation was much less of an option, so that uh, that increase in openness and possibility isn't altogether a bad thing.
0: Thousands of Canadians are logging on to dating sites to find love, and the good news is there's a lot of single people in Canada. According to Stats Canada, there were 14.2 million single Canadians in 2014. And Plenty of Fish, which is a Vancouver-based dating website, has over a hundred million users worldwide. Well, it's quite possible that your friend or yourself have met their significant other online. And that's because more people are becoming comfortable using online dating sites. And with so many websites and apps out there, it's now normal to use dating online to meet someone. Now, the online dating scene in Canada is actually growing, and according to research by Ipsos World, usage of online dating websites and related services in Canada has grown to 6 million per year since 2010. Men make up 52.4% of online dating users compared to 47.6% of women. However, these online dating stats can change based on the site being used and the location. Now here's an interesting stat, and that is that 53% of people lie on their online dating profile. 20% of women surveyed admitted using an older photo from when they were younger, while 40% of men said they lied about their jobs in an effort to sound more successful. Here's a funny one how keywords really pop up in people's profile. For example, the most common keyword in Calgary is the flames while in Edmonton it's the Oilers in Kitchener and Waterloo it's cottages, Toronto is the distillery, Vancouver the seawall, and back to hockey in Winnipeg with the Jets. While the best chance of finding love is still through a friend, and that's how 63% of married couples have met their partner, you might be surprised to find that 20% of current committed relationships began online. Just remember, if we look at the stats from online dating, 64% of people who use these sites are really just looking for someone they have something in common with. Happy hunting. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Richard Schwartz, Harvard professor and author. With Valentine's Day approaching, we've been talking about love and connection, but for many, it can be a very lonely day in particular given the current isolation of the pandemic. Dr. Schwartz and his wife, Dr. Jacqueline Olds, wrote a book called The Lonely American. In this book, they shared their research on the physiological and cognitive effects of social exclusion and the emerging work in the neurobiology of attachment. They uncovered startling, sobering ripple effects of loneliness in areas as varied as physical health, children's emotional problems, substance abuse, and even global warming. Surprising new studies tell a grim truth about social isolation. Being disconnected diminishes happiness, health and longevity. It increases aggression and correlates with increasing rates of violent crime. Loneliness doesn't apply to simply single people either. Today's busy parents tend to cocoon themselves by devoting most of their non-work hours to children, leaving little time for friends and other forms of social contact. This leads to an unhealthy relying on the marriage to fulfill all social needs, which isn't possible. Let's hear more from Dr. Schwartz. So, okay, so you talked about some rocky times and you've you've been working with with, uh, patients for years and years. What are some of the normal stresses that every relationship sees and what should people feel almost normal if they experience it in their relationship?
1: Uh, Well, one of the... uh most famous ones of uh, that uh, that marriage researchers have known about for years is there is a uh, u-shaped curve of happiness that dips in a marriage and the dip in happiness in a marriage coincides with having young children at home. fact is uh, young children are are stressful. They are wonderfully satisfying. I, I, I actually think it, uh, it is for many people uh, the best times of their lives, including of their marriage. But in terms of just marital happiness per se, uh, it's pretty ma- hard to maintain under the the onslaught of the demands of young children and the way in which they actually turn you away from each other towards them. <laughs> uh, so that that's one of them. Certainly. Financial stress leads to uh, you know, a, a lot of difficulties within marriages. Illnesses of uh, one spouse or, or the other can uh, can often lead to a, a distance and alienation that you know keeps people from uh, reconnecting. Those are some of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 you know, I think that also uh, when you talked about it, uh, being able to recognize these ebbs and flows, and so all. I'll bring up uh, what you call distance alarms. So when these ebb and flows occur and people start to get a little too far away from each other, what happens and how do people react, good and bad, to mm-hmm. that distance?
1: The, the important thing is that at least one partner notices and is distressed by the dis- distance that otherwise people will just keep drifting. So it's not the best name for it but so uh, we labeled this sense that one partner has of a, you know we are growing apart a, a distance alarm a, a kind of warning that goes off in you when you have a sense of uh, you know, you a closeness fading between you and your, your partner and my wife thinks, and I think it's probably true, that women are more often uh, likely to have the distance alarm than men. But, uh, but maybe I also just come in contact with many sensitive men in my <laughs> my practice. I, I, I've seen a, lo- a lot of marriages in which the, the man is the one with the distance alarm. Yeah. And what you do about it you say uh, good and bad reactions. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that that there are necessarily good or bad reactions. The important thing is to have some reaction, to do something about it, to re-engage, to reel the, the, the person back in to get your partner's attention again. Mm. And, you know, at its best, you can do that by saying, oh, my love, I noticed that, you know, we haven't been Talking and doing things together as much. Let's uh, let's plan a, a a little vacation together, or let's you know let's take a walk together and talk, or uh, or let's make love. But often uh, the reengagement comes apart uh, comes about by by picking a fight, <laughs> and that actually gets the other person's attention again, and you know, you're you're often running.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and Valentine's Day is coming up. It's one of those days that most people feel almost obligated to connect with their partner. What are some ways that people connect, in your experience, that are the most beneficial on a day like that?
1: Yeah, uh, it, it's a tough thing because, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's too much pressure, right? Right. But it's too much pressure. Yeah. Human beings. Want two completely contradictory things, uh, and they want both in their relationships as well. You, you you want familiarity, security, stability, and you want novelty, and you want both at the same time. Different people want different mixes, but the big threat to uh, to to passion in a relationship is the sense of sameness and lack of curiosity and lack of discovery in uh, in the other. So I I think what you want to do with Valentine's Day is take it as an opportunity to do something that breaks out of the ordinary routine with your partner and does something that feels Unusual and novel, and and just gets you to see each other in a slightly new way again. You know, the end. It doesn't have to be anything very complex. The, the usual deal of go out for a special dinner uh, uh, when we used to be able to go out for a special dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, I, I think that that really is sufficient. But but something that that is, is a kind of ritual of noticing each other in a new way again.
0: I love that. I love that. And, uh, I mean, you know, I think it's almost like exercise. Cause that's one of my backgrounds is you can't just do it once and expect to get in shape. It's got to be something you do regularly and you make a habit of it. Yes. Right. So Valentine's day, you know, that's great for couples, but not everybody is with a partner. And yeah. It can be an exceptionally lonely day. You have done a tremendous amount of work with yourself and your wife on issues related to loneliness and social isolation. What's the impact of of loneliness on people? Uh, As uh, uh, you mentioned earlier, it
1: shortens their lives. Mm. That both social isolation, which is uh, sort of an objective lack of contact with others, and just the feeling of loneliness, which is that subjective feeling of, uh, of, of being lonely even if you're with other people. Uh, both of those have been shown in massive studies to uh, have a very large effect on how long you live. An effect that is as powerful as whether or not you smoke and whether or not you are obese. It, it's one of the uh, sort of remarkable facts uh, about uh, our body and our health—that uh, that one of the most uh, damaging thing over time to it is, is our states of loneliness. Mm. And actually, speaking of people who are alone on Valentine's Day, uh, yeah, uh, I have been uh, blasted by some patients for saying that, which because it just makes them feel worse about being lonely. But I, I think it. Just means that when you're lonely, including on Valentine's Day, it's important to do something about it. Mm -hmm. That often people are alone, feeling that, well, nobody calls, nobody wants to see me. But that so often is because you don't call and you don't let other people know that you want to see them. And it just Spirals down from there, yeah. and I, I think it's really important to make yourself reach out to people and mm-hmm. find out find ways to do that, and uh, and maybe uh, in anticipation of Valentine's Day, make a point of doing that so that you,
0: you know you're, you're not
1: going to spend it alone, feeling feeling sad about that.
0: Right. And there's lots of ways to engage with friends and friends, Valentine's mm-hmm. days and all that good stuff. So with the pandemic, people have been locked down in certain places. They aren't allowed to get together in groups. Like for example, me, like when I go to work and I go to the university and I see colleagues and I have a great chat, I feel mm-hmm. great. Like I actually can feel yeah. a physical response. Have you seen increased effects caused by the pandemic in some of the work you've done?
1: Yeah, I, I have certainly seen it and, uh, you know, sort of, large questionnaires that have been done through the pe- pandemic really uh, do confirm that people are more lonely, more depressed, more more desperate. Mm-hmm. And uh, that uh, that has been so hard on, on some people. And uh, in some ways, uh, I, I think it could have been worse because a lot of people have been using social media, Zoom, just the telephone as ways of connecting, and uh, it might not be quite as good as uh, real real life in person contact with people. But it, you know, it, it certainly has has helped and uh, ameliorated for the people who are able to do that. Mm-hmm. Some people, have, uh, particularly older people who haven't been able to make good use of that, uh, they've never been suffering.
0: Right. Right. That makes sense. And a lot of care homes, for example, have also been some of the strictest when it comes to company because of the risk for the population that's there. That's Dr. Richard Schwartz, Harvard professor, author, and speaker, sharing his expertise on connection for all of us. When we come back, we'll talk about how wellness plays a role in love and some surprising conclusions you won't want to miss. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back, I'm here with Dr. Richard Schwartz, Harvard professor, author, and speaker. He's talking about love and connection. In this segment, we'll talk about the importance of healthy lifestyle when it comes to love and how we all get a little rusty from time to time. But more importantly, how can we get our mojo going again in our relationships? Let's check it out. So on a wellness side of things, if we want to make ourselves love better, or be in a good mental state for love or companionship or friendship, what are some things we should be doing when it comes to our lifestyle? That's an interesting question. Yeah, I you know, I, I think we should be
1: uh, reaching out and connecting to people mm-hmm. more than many people do. I, I think we uh, should be keeping ourselves in good physical health exercise. Yeah, they, I remember seeing a study years ago, can't remember where, or but they uh, took a group of people, I, I think it was a group of women, and they had them in a regular swim exercise program over a number of months. And one of the things they found is that the participants who had the exercise component had more frequent lovemaking and more satisfying lovemaking than the ones who weren't exercising. And the speculation was that, you know, when you feel better about your body, uh, you, you actually um, are more available to get it engaged in love, sex, and the enjoyment of it. So that,
0: uh, uh, I th- that's one thing you can do. I, th- I think you just accomplished two things. Number one, you just proved the point that a body emotion stays in motion. <laughs> and secondly, I think you've just increased the exercise of our listening population dramatically. So congratulations on that. Good for you. <laughs>
1: I think it's a small study. I know. <laughs> exactly.
0: yeah. That's good. Hey, whatever helps uh, support it. No, I think that's great. And I think that, you know, you, you get feel good hormones from exercise, all sorts of things that make you in a better mental state and maybe more, uh, more open to paying attention to your partner. Let's go back to one other thing that also came up your TEDx talk. I thought it was really interesting because, okay, people realize there's an ebb and flow. They realize the need to connect. Distance alarms are going off. The partners are eager to go. And, and to reconnect, but they might be rusty because it's been a while. You know, I can imagine somebody who's had a child, for example, they've been really in the throes of it for a few months, and they're rusty. You had a term around being rusty. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, I think we've called it the rustiest phenomenon and we periodically say we gotta come up with a better name for that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, once you, you felt disconnected from a, a partner for, for too long it, it's hard to imagine any other state or, or to put it more concretely you know I, I, I have patients who have been in uh, unhappy marriages in one way or another and uh, they come and tell me it has been five years since we made love mm-hmm. and I I we i don't see how we can get back there again and uh, i think that that is perhaps uh, the the most vivid example of uh, of this rustiness when you are how to practice in being with another person in a particular way it's just hard to it's hard to imagine doing that again it's hard to imagine how you can even get there Mm. and uh it helps to recognize that it is just rustiness and being out of practice and uh, not some state where it has actually become impossible. Right,
0: right, exactly. I I started playing basketball for the first time in like 15 years, and it was pretty rusty. But, you know, over time you get a little better and, and go from there. But that actually, by reconnecting with people, just like when I'm playing basketball, eventually the skill comes back. That reignites some of those centers in the brain that help us with connection, right? Yeah. I, I, anything that sort of
1: exercises a, a way of being or a way of thinking uh, you know,
0: brings it back, revives it. Yes. Excellent. Yeah, so we're starting to wind down here. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's very interesting stuff. I think it's everybody listening probably had no idea this was all the stuff that was going on inside of our bodies and our brains and our emotions. Thank you so much for taking the time to share all that with us today. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you to Dr. Schwartz for joining us today. The science of love is still a mystery to many and it may be to you too. But that's okay. From what we've heard, we all go through ebbs and flows, passion and distance, and loneliness, even when we have a partner. So pay attention to your distance alarms, shake off the rust, try something new, and reach out for connection. That's a good reason to celebrate Valentine's Day, whether you're single or you're in love. Because being in love and having connection is good for your health. Well, that's our show this week. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle show on your VOCM.